Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Polar Time, the podcast that brings you science and stories from all of the coolest places on the planet, quite literally. My name is Jack Buckingham. You're here with me once again. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Polar Time. We're excited to have you. My episode today, I was very excited to talk to this person. They are a marine biologist and conservation ecologist from the Alfred Wegener Institute in Germany and the Berlin Center for Genomics and Biodiversity Research. We talked all about her research looking into the Patagonian toothfish and, and the Antarctic toothfish and its population structure in the Southern Ocean. Sounds crazy fancy, but you might know Patagonian toothfish or toothfish in general as Chilean sea bass, which is a, a food fish species. So, you know, something that you see on your shelves, quite important, quite relevant, quite interesting. And her research is helping to inform policy about how to set up uh, marine protected areas around Antarctica. We also talk about things like target catch ratios. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's get into it. Okay, everybody, please welcome to the stage my next guest, Jilda Kakavo. Hi, Jilda. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks so much for having me. No, thanks for coming. I'm excited to have you. I was uh, quite looking forward to talking to you because we met a few times in like at the beginning of my PhD. So now it's like, you know, here I am, a third year, kind of a bit more fledged. <laughs> so, I got that full circle thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Awesome. Okay, so this is the first bit of the podcast, which we like to call the icebreaker. And this is where we just get to know you. So what, who are you? What do you do? How did you get into polar life? All right, good question. Um, well, so my name is Jilda, and I am a marine biologist that studies Antarctic fish. And I guess my main thing is that I'm a, I'm a conservation biologist, and I have a marine focus. For me, the polar thing came it was it was not that from the very beginning I always wanted to be a polar researcher from when I was little I wanted to be a marine biologist and then over time and various uh, vagaries of one's study and career path um, I ended back up in marine biology after having taken a detour in biomedical sciences neurobiology and then when I came back to marine biology with a master's and decided I want to do this. I found a program uh, that was looking at Antarctic fish, a project looking at Antarctic fish for a PhD. And I said, cool, it uses my, my criteria were basically some kind of conservation application and genetics because that was what I wanted my impact to be. And that was the background I had. And so this Antarctic fish project had put those two together. And so then ever since I did that, um, I've been sort of in this Antarctic fish or Antarctic world generally, or polar world, so to say, generally. And it's not that I would necessarily um, want to leave it per se, but once you get into a certain space, well, you get you know, the expertise. I know a lot more about Antarctic fish than I would say coral fish. And I know a lot more about, say, fish than I would know about birds. And you also meet all these people and you make all these connections and these networks. So it's a lot easier for me to stay in the polar sciences, but I'm not necessarily married to it. The thing that's really important to me is that 
my work can have some sort of positive conservation policy impact. And then I use my the skills that I have, which at the moment happen to be Antarctic and fish related. Because that's just what happens, isn't it? Especially in <laughs> yeah. academia. And when you're doing your PhD, you just kind of become more and more specialized because that's the nature of the beast. And then you just turn around and you're like, I, I used to like dolphins. I did marine biology. Well, <laughs> I'm up doing like plastic now. <laughs> how did that happen? But it's just how it happened, isn't it? <laughs> Especially in academia. Yeah. And I mean, I would also feel so like there's so many great people that I've met that I would feel very sad not to see every now and then at conferences. Although, of course, no one's seeing anybody nowadays. It's sort of been a missed year of all of those reconnections with folks. So to an extent, uh, you know, maybe that will change, but, but yeah, so, so that's sort of where I'm coming from, at least, uh, professionally. I mean, if you really wanted to take it back, I sort of had a crisis, uh, a early life crisis, let's say mid twenties crisis when I was in my first PhD for uh, neurobiology, where I realized, oh, I don't, I don't like the type of work I'm doing. I was doing like research on drug addiction, which was really interesting, but I didn't like working on animals. It was like a rat based project, which mind you, not every neurobiology research project has to work on animals, but this particular one did. And I was also getting a bit fed up with being in the lab all the time. And so I'm kind of just wanting to have a bit more fresh air. So for myriad reasons, some of those are included, I decided to leave that program. Luckily, I was able to leave it with a master's, so it wasn't all for naught. I was like, huh, what do I do now? And I considered actually doing farming because I said to myself, well, how could I have the least possible impact? I will just grow food here and eat it, and that's it, and it'll be fine. <laughs> uh, and I actually did an internship on a farm, but the thing was is that if I was going to go deeper into it, uh, I would have to have my own land to do that for myself, and I didn't have that. So ultimately, I'd be learning a lot about how to uh, process somebody else's land, which is fine. But I also felt like that this was it was it was not the kind of uh, self-sufficient vision that I had for myself. Dream that you were kind of going for. Yeah. yeah. So I said, well, okay. I guess I have to have a real. If I ever want to have land, to have a little farm, and be a little bit more self-sufficient, I need to have a job. If I'm going to have to have a job, well, what can I do? What are my skills? And so that led me back, sort of, to academia, and then I reconsidered the whole marine biology thing. But yeah, I guess so. So that's sort of my job. But uh, if what what I would want to do is is just you know try to have as least impact as I can on things on the planet. Of course, that doesn't preclude the fact that I do travel quite a bit and so that's not <laughs> helpful, but <laughs> I mean, I travel quite a bit when traveling was possible. So. Yeah, yeah, yes. Because I was going to ask, did you do your neurobiology degree at Harvard? Is that do I have my correct information? Yes and no. So I did my undergraduate at Harvard okay. and I, my major like, was in neurobiology. Wow. For someone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I mean. <laughs> One of those wild schools, isn't it? So it's just, it's just quite a life shift, isn't it? You're doing neurobiology at, at Harvard and then an MSc after that. And then to shift into a totally different field is like a quite a big life decision. Did you, were people questioning like what you're doing and you had to like, kind of break free or was it just a uh, do what you I want, want to, do? to break free uh <laughs> yes um indeed uh, my parents were not very happy about me deciding to quit the phd because uh it in their perspective uh if, as long as i get the phd uh, i have a lot of options for jobs even if i don't want to pursue a job in academic neurobiology research or biomedical research uh, my perspective uh, in contrast to that was that this 
dedicating another whatever would have been two, three years to this degree would have prepared me for a job in these fields and not necessarily for the type of thing that I wanted to do, which really had nothing to do with biomedical research. And I felt that it wasn't worth it to invest another two, three years in something I really didn't enjoy doing that I felt would only really prepare me for jobs, good jobs, but jobs related to that field. So that's why I decided to just leave it and then kind of took nine months to sort of think about what are my options and then decided to to go into the marine biology route that I'd always liked as a little kid. And also this was in tandem with um, some personal decisions about um, wanting to move with my partner at the time to Europe and also the fact that as coming from the U.S., master's programs uh, as everything in the U.S. costs a lot of money. And they're also often two years long, whereas in the U.K., master's programs uh, were, and I imagine continue to be, uh, one year, even paying the uh, non-U.K., non-EU citizen rates, I was still paying one half of what I would have paid per year in the U.S. And given that the program was half the time, I essentially was going to pay a quarter for the same degree mm. and get to live in a new exciting place. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I love to hear like a success story because obviously it's so easy for people to just get stuck in what they're doing and then without realizing that they can, you know, make a change if they want. Yeah. So, I mean, I was also relatively young at the time. Uh, I mean, I left my PhD program in 2012, which means I was 26, but actually I was doing, I was making a similar career decision to my partner at the time who was also in neurobiology research and he was 44. So he was a little bit older than me too. But just to say like he had been working as a sort of like a career researcher, not an early career researcher, maybe not a senior, but, um, and he decided to, to switch fields from neurobiology to, to public health and, and managed to do that and, and get a job in that and was happier. So just to say that my example is a positive one, but, you know, it's relatively easy to switch fields when you're in your 20s or maybe even your 30s. But just to give the anecdote that even I've seen it happen, even with someone in their 40s and a bit more established. So anyone, anytime can do whatever they can try to do whatever they want to make themselves happy and hopefully it'll work out. But I think a lot of the things that stop us from doing these kind of things is our own sense of limitation on what we can or cannot do. So it's always nice to hear examples of people that manage to do it because it helps us to break down those own like, personal barriers. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know who's listening now who needed to hear that, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. So now you are based in Germany, in Berlin, at mm-hmm. the Alfred Wegener Institute. Is that Correct. Yes. And that's where you're doing your postdoctoral program, still on similar to what you did your PhD on, like you're looking at Antarctic fish and connectivity and all that kind of stuff. Well, so so I'm based at both the Alfred Wegener Institute, Avi, as well as um, a genetics consortium in, in Berlin, which is called the Berlin Center for Genomics and Biodiversity Research. And this consortium is basically a pretty nice lab that is funded by six different institutions in Berlin that, you know, the Botanical Museum, the Natural History Museum, a Zoological Institute, a couple of universities. And this consortium supports genomics projects related to population level work, phylogenomics, all kinds of species, be it from bacteria to sloths. So it's, the idea was not that I was coming to the project, to to this consortium, because of their Antarctic expertise, I was sort of bringing the Antarctic side, but it was to their expertise in designing projects that, in helping to support and design projects 
to use genomics to answer conservation biodiversity related questions in non-model species, in, in wild species and so on and so forth. And the Avi connection is more of the Antarctic connection to the project. Yes, because Avi, which is how people say the acronym for Alfred Wegener Institute, is yes. one of the big boys, isn't it, in kind of polar research, certainly in Europe, probably in the world. Uh, so yeah. Again, impressive that you're connected with them, in my humble little opinion. <laughs> uh, I was lucky that they uh, agreed to connect with me. I mean, I, I have, I'm funded by a by the Humboldt uh, Foundation. It's a private foundation in Germany that funds non-Germans to do postdoctoral projects in, in Germany, as well as professor exchanges. So they have funding for early career as well as for, for professors, similar to the, the SCAR Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research Fellowship Program that provides this early career funding as well as later career funding. So the Humboldt Foundation provides this to non-Germans, as well as for Germans, it provides them the opportunity to do research projects outside of Germany. So it's this sort of idea of cultural exchange, bringing talent into Germany uh, and training German talent elsewhere. And so I was lucky enough to get the project funded from this foundation, and I brought that funding to these two institutes. Uh, so I'm sort of an independent researcher associated with them. It's not that either the Alfred Wegener Institute or this genomics consortium are paying me. Okay, okay. Because I was going to ask you about the uh, Humboldt Research Fellowship and also the SCAR Fellowship as well, because these are both things that you had to apply for, I assume, and you won based off your, your merit, because they can quite big grants slash pots of money. So... Congratulations. This is, this is oh. awesome. You have a glittering CV, yeah. <laughs> Very just. Um, so, oh, oh, gosh, Jack, you're going to give me a job. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally would, yeah. As a young researcher, this is a good question. How do you go about achieve, not achieving, you know, winning these grants, I suppose? What worked for you? I, I'm happy to give advice about that because I think that these processes are often about luck and being in the right place at the right time. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So during my PhD, I was lucky to get three different types of funding opportunities related to European researchers or polar researchers. I'll, I'll now explain what these three are in the case that they might be relevant. Uh, so the first one was the Antarctic Science Bursary, which you may be familiar with, based in the UK. It's provided by Antarctic Science Limited, uh, which is based in the UK. And that's a fund, I think, up to five, I mean, I, the details are not important because that can be found online. But essentially, uh, I applied for that to fund an aspect of my PhD project in the US. So they, again, it's like these funding people to do a small portion of a project. So it's not to fund, it's not giving you salary, it's not to fund years of work, it's to fund one to three months of work, usually to fund field work or machine costs, like renting machines and in institutes. Um, so I was, I was able to get that. And then for the SCAR Fellowship, for example, uh, that was something that I remember it was in 2016 that I applied and got it. A colleague had told me about it in, I think, February or something like that. And then in one year, out the other, I completely forgot about it until June came around and I saw a reminder email about it. And I was like, oh, I totally forgot about this. This might be a really great opportunity. And I looked at it and I was like, huh, what could I do for this? Hmm, you know what's a nice place? France. <laughs> And so I lit. I literally like it started from there. It started from where would I like to go? And I was like, is there cool research there? And I essentially I looked at the south of France 
Because <laughs> who wouldn't? And there was a lot of, so I was studying the Antarctic silverfish, which is a keystone species in the Southern Ocean, similar to krill, for my PhD. And there had been a lot of great work on Antarctic silverfish at the Villefranche-sur-Mer Oceanographic Institute. And so I basically contacted the people that had been involved in that research, came up with an idea, and essentially with only a week to go, was able to put together the proposal and apply for it. I have to say this was also thanks to the really kind SCAR office, because I basically wrote them and I was like, you know, uh, I'd really like to apply for this, but I don't have a lot of time. So it may not be the best proposal in the world. If I apply now and don't get it, will that decrease my chances in the future? And they said, no, in contrast, it will improve them because we provide feedback for everybody who, you know, doesn't get the, the thing. And so I was, I was able to submit the proposal and I was I was lucky enough to get it. And then finally, another thing I applied for and was lucky enough to get was an Erasmus Plus fellowship, which was for PhD students to do research sort of different from your own doctoral research. And that I essentially applied for because I met who I recommended to you to interview a uh, uh, Dr. Yen uh, Robert Cuder, who is the current, I think, chief life science officer. He has a million titles. He's also the delegate to the Antarctic Treaty for France and all these things. He's the most amazing person in the world. I met him at the SCAR 2016 Kuala Lumpur conference, and we had the best time. And I said, huh, I want to work with that guy. <laughs> But he does large mammal and bird telemetry, which has nothing to do with fish genetics. So I found out about this Erasmus Plus fellowship that kind of funds research that's different from your doctoral work. And I said, huh, maybe there's something we could do there. And he said, hey, well, actually, there's someone in my lab that does some genetic work on penguins. Maybe you could work with them. And so essentially, we put together a small project, and I was able to go to his lab in France for three months to work on this uh, penguin telomere project. And then, so I'm going to just tell you about one last fellowship and then tell you a sort of a little sort of trick that I think is relevant to why I was able to get it. And that's the last one is the CAMLAR scholarship, which I got this past November 2019. And CAMLAR is the Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. They're the body that manages, creates the policy and the scientific advice to manage krill, toothfish, anything that's fish for profit in the Southern Ocean. And the scholarship is for early career researchers to attend their meetings. So CAMLAR meets in the Northern Hemisphere summers uh, for working groups, and then in the fall for working groups as well, in addition to the full scientific committee and commission meetings, where every year they decide who can fish where, how much, what conservation measures, which essentially dictate what I just said, go forward, and so on and so forth. They also implemented, for example, the largest marine protected area in the world in the Ross Sea in 2016. So this scholarship funds early career researchers to attend these meetings and have a mentor within CAMLAR to help them become acquainted with the system. So both with the SCAR fellowship and the CAMLAR scholarship, I was in the right place at the right time. So I'm a, as you can perhaps hear, a native English speaker. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York, and I was working, I was doing my PhD in Italy. So my capacity to, in one week, write a proposal as a native English speaker is very different from your average Italian PhD student. And so both SCAR and CAMLAR have 
have sort of country requirements in terms of who they're giving different fellowships to because they don't want every fellowship to go, for example, to the U.S. or the U.K. or, or France, uh, you know, places that have much stronger um, polar programs and perhaps a lot more Ph.D. students. And of course, English, the ability to communicate and write well in English is also a barrier. So I feel that I was I was in the right place at the right time as someone with a greater capacity to to write um, compared to because I not that I write well, but I don't have to think in the same way as is if I'm writing in French or Italian, which I also speak, uh, I would certainly not write as well in those languages, you know, so I think that was part of it. And the same thing with Kamler, like I applied the first time I didn't get it. And that was essentially one of the persons I was speaking to was like, yeah, well, they had just given I was still in Italy at the time, the first time I applied for the scholarship. And I was basically told, well, the scholarship was given to someone in Italy last year. So we couldn't give it to you because you know, Italy already got one, essentially. Uh, and then once I was in Germany, then it could all work itself out. So I, so honestly, like, sure, there's your merit and your CV. But honestly, a huge part is where you are. Um, and a lot of these sort of quotas, which makes sense, it's important to have them, but you sort of have to be in the right box at the right time to, to make that work in your advantage. Mm-hmm. And of course, obviously, you also have to be in it to win it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, you have to try at least. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there you go. Even if you're, it's just a week before the deadline, you could still, you could still do it. <laughs> it yeah, there, there is precedence. Not yeah. that it's recommended. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you, when we met in um, Madrid, uh, you were talking possibly about the SCAR Fellowship. I mentioned that you'd applied like the week before. And then I think I looked it up and it was for some, it might even have been like shortly before the deadline, and I was a bit like, "How? <laughs> How in a week?" <laughs> so yeah, kudos, good job. Uh, so I should also just clarify: SCAR is the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research. So we kept saying SCAR fellowship, etc. Yes, they're, they're kind of the big, all-encompassing international organization of Antarctica, as well as being Mufasa's nemesis. <laughs> Sure, exactly, yeah. (laughs) Awesome. So um, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you are doing, like right now, in your kind of day-to-day job? Is there a specific... So you did your PhD on, like, Antarctic silverfish, and now you're applying the same kind of multidisciplinary genetics mixed with other techniques to Antarctic toothfish so exactly so and that's what you're doing now so does that involve lab work does that involve data stuff like what's your what's your kind of day-to-day to to answer that question I suppose and what's the question (laughs) (laughs) good point let's yeah let's start with the question so so as you said I went from silverfish this little tiny 10 centimeter long fish um that uh, researchers have dubbed the sticks of butter of the Southern Ocean because they're super fatty and about the size of a stick of butter. So mm-hmm. if you can imagine that. <laughs> yeah. Fish, which are like these monsters, aren't they? <laughs> exactly. Up to two meters long. And, and the big difference uh, in a management sense is that silverfish are not an exploited species. Uh, they're important to the ecosystem, but no one's going out there and removing them on a regular, harvesting them on a regular basis. Whereas toothfish have the most lucrative fishery in all of the Southern Ocean going after them. For many of your listeners, Jack, um, toothfish are also known as Chilean sea bass in yes. many parts of the world. 
That's how they're marketed. Um, the story behind that being that there are actually two species of toothfish, the Patagonian that are restricted to latitudes north of 60 degrees south and around the uh, lower part, Tierra del Fuego, uh, Patagonia, all that of South America, while also going up the west coast of South America and Chile, because there's this very cold current that they can inhabit those waters. So they go up pretty north on that side. But for the most part, in terms of a circum-Antarctic distribution, so all around the Southern Ocean, they're really restricted to sub-Antarctic islands. Um, they don't go further south towards the continent, and they don't go further north other than that exception sort of west of Chile. And so both of these fish have been, they've been collected for profit around the Antarctic for about the past 30 years or so. And in the 90s and going into the early 2000s, the regulation was not as it is today. And so many of you, especially in the U.S., I mean, I don't know elsewhere, but I remember when I was little and used to get those little pamphlets from this organization called Seafood Watch, which told you which fish to avoid and which fish to have. Yeah. Chilean sea bass was to avoid, and I think that was because of um, issues related to its management, issues in dealing with illegal, unreported fishing that was happening with them. However, Camlar managed to, oh, and also related to bycatch, for example, the lines that collect toothfish could harm birds because there's, as you, if you can imagine, if you've ever seen a fishing boat coming into port, there's tons and tons of seagulls after it. It's the same kind of thing in the Antarctic, but with really big birds and albatross. that are really, yeah. really dark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Albatross, all kinds of things, crazy cool birds that uh, can be killed by the machinery that uh, are bringing in the fish. So that was an issue as well. Camlar successfully in the 2000s managed to change the way the machinery was working um, to bring in the fish that um, drastically reduced the number of bird deaths related to fishing boats and were also able to clamp down on illegal and unreported fishing. So those things uh, were very good. So to go back to the very beginning, right, it started to be fish. The name toothfish doesn't sound very appetizing. So this idea to call it sea bass, something that people could already recognize, uh, kind of came from that and the fact that it was caught near Chile. But if you are in a store and you buy Chilean sea bass, it could be Patagonian or Antarctic toothfish. You, you don't know which. And so essentially for me, I was excited to be able to apply methods that I developed in my PhD work on silverfish to questions about toothfish. And coming back to your original question, what are those questions? And so the question is essentially, what is the population structure? How, how many populations are there? And what is a population? A population is a self-fulfilling cycle. So fish are, are born, they, they become adults, they give birth again, and those babies go back to the same place to develop and then give birth again. And it's sort of a closed cycle of birth development. Uh, reproduction and death. And so that's what we're defining in this case as a, of a population. And the question is, around the Antarctic, and in particular in certain regions, how many populations are there? And to what extent do we have to make management decisions that are different based on whether or not there are multiple or single populations? Um, 
And so that was the question about silverfish. How many populations are there? How are they connected? And so now the idea is to apply similar methods to answer those very same questions about toothfish, but now having the management perspective because it's also a harvested species. Okay, interesting. And you could totally fall down a rabbit hole of talking about fishing in the Southern Ocean, couldn't we? I imagine. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Because I imagine it's very difficult to police this kind of illegal, unregulated fishing, i.e. fishing. And um, Pamela are responsible for implementing these massive marine protected areas, aren't they? Are they the biggest ones Mm -hmm. in the world that they have around like the Ross Sea and the Weddell Sea down there? The Weddell Sea has not been passed yet. Weddell Sea is one of three proposed areas. Yeah, yeah, just so technically behind this. (laughs) Oh, oh, there's a ton of politics. I mean, anything related to international governmental organizations is going to have politics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Uh, that's that's polar it? times after dark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these uh, so these big end marine protected areas that they have that they have established. What does that involve? Are these absolutely no take zones where no fishing occurs at all, or is it just like there's quotas? What's the situation? But these are very good questions, and I am learning about this stuff, but I'm not necessarily the expert on it. So I will just answer briefly to the extent of my own knowledge. So yeah. currently, Camlar has two marine protected areas. One is quite small, so people know less about it. It's around the South Orkney Islands. And so it's just a little square around the the plateau around the South Orkney Islands. And that's been around for some time. I don't remember when it was established, but it's not new. And the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area is the new one established as of 2016 and the biggest one in the world. Uh, There are three other marine protected areas that are in the planning phases for many years, at least five, if not up to 10. One is called Domain One around the Antarctic Peninsula. One is the Weddell Sea, as you've mentioned, and that's been one that's been championed by researchers at the Alfred Wegener Institute, Germany, and the EU. And finally, there's one along East Antarctica. And so these have failed to be uh, brought to commission. They've failed to achieve consensus from the scientific committee for their passage. Um, And so if a a proposal does not achieve consensus from the scientific committee, it is often not reviewed by the commission because the commission, who are the politicians, essentially turn around and say, uh, well, the scientists aren't in agreement, so let's let them sort their stuff out before we even consider this. Uh, And so really the goal is to get consensus at the scientific committee level on these proposals in order to get them to the commission. Usually once there is consensus, scientific consensus behind an idea, it passes through the commission because the politicians are like, we don't know. And they just say yes, because that's the point of the scientific committee. But that was a digression. You asked about how are these areas policed? Are there take zones and so on? Not being an expert on that, but I will say that the Rossi Marine Protected Area, for example, does have take zones, does have areas where certain exploratory fisheries can take place in order to, the idea is, um, provide fish for research while allowing certain countries to make a small profit. These are not fishing levels of established commercial fishing areas. Uh, They're having orders of magnitude less tonnage being collected there. But the idea is that a small amount of fishing is allowed in very specific areas in order to collect samples, to inform assessments of biomass and population structure, etc. So that's in the, the answer to the question about whether there is take or not in the Rossi MPA. How things are policed, 
that's honestly a question that I don't, I would be the wrong person to, to answer. There are scientific you, observers. Week, the times where we talk to uh, yeah. <laughs> a fisherman. I mean, it's, it's, it's a super interesting question. I mean, Kamlar puts scientific observers on all of the fishing boats. And these are um, typically, they're, they're supposed to be um, neutral folks who are essentially just counting fish, putting tags on fish, weighing fish, identifying bycatch, and so on and so forth. And these observers are in some ways the eyes and ears of Camlar, both for data collection as well as making sure that um, strategies to reduce harm to birds or bycatch are being implemented by the fishing boats, making sure that compliance is happening, and so on and so forth. But in terms of how, you know, if a fishing boat is in the wrong place in the wrong time, who sees it and how that's reported? I don't know. It's a really good question. And it remains, you know, as well as Camlar can do about what it knows about doesn't necessarily mean that it's controlling things that are happening that it doesn't know about. I'll give you a good example. As part of the Camlar scholarship, which again, I'm, I'm lucky to, to have that for this year and next, I have a mentor whose name is Christopher D. Jones. He is also amazing, like Yann Robert Couder. And uh, he's in charge of the FinFish division at NOAA, the, the U.S. Weather Ocean Service, Science Service. And so he's in charge of, he's at the Antarctic wing of that in Southern, in San Diego and California, and he's in charge of their FinFish division. And so we're, I'm very lucky that he's my mentor for the Camlar Scholarship, and we get to have informal chats every couple of weeks and nerd out about Camlar. It's super fun. And something that he, we were discussing just recently was this thing called target catch ratios. Okay, everybody, don't shut off your podcast. It <laughs> sounds boring, but it's actually really interesting. So essentially, what's a target catch ratio? Your target is toothfish. Whatever you catch that isn't toothfish is considered, is the other thing that you're making the ratio to. So it's sort of the number of toothfish you catch over the number of other things you catch. And it's a way to track how much bycatch you're getting because Camlar has certain rules. If you pass, I don't know, 10 tons of bycatch, I don't know what the number is, it may be way more or way less, then you have to leave the area that you're in. It doesn't matter how much fish you've caught, it doesn't matter how long you've been there, you've reached your bycatch limit, you need to go. So the idea is that um, people should be reporting all the bycatch they collect and they should be stopping fishing in a certain area when they've reached that limit. What you can look at is these target catch ratios that every fishing vessel from every country is reporting. And if everybody was reporting perfectly and doing exactly what they said they were doing, you should more or less see a, you know, a relatively large error bar, maybe for a given fishing vessel, certain hauls will have more catch, uh, bycatch than others. You should see years a relatively low number, uh, a relatively low ratio, meaning that you're finding some bycatch. It's not that you're finding zero. When you see certain vessels or certain countries that are reporting almost zero bycatch and a very small error, Sure, there could be factors of more hauls or less hauls, or maybe a country has more vessels or less. These are in the details, and these are the things that the scientific committee, then when they go into that data, they, they look into. But it's very peculiar to see that. And so mm -hmm. this is, could be an indication of all kinds of, quote unquote, sorry for the pun, folks, fishy behavior. <laughs> Um, yeah, and this, could, this the whole time. <laughs> I was. I was just waiting for it. Uh, that that could mean that folks are not reporting bycatch. That could mean that folks are actually 
collecting fish in another kind of siphoning toothfish from illegal fishing onto their boat. And so the numbers of toothfish are way higher than the bycatch because the actual fishing they did in the actual area, you have a very small amount of bycatch because most of the fish is coming from this illegal vessel. I mean, there's all sorts of things that could be going on. And so the idea is that these target catch ratios can provide you with really interesting clues about compliance, uh, what different vessels and countries are doing, which could then help to inform new compliance strategies and new ways to, um, you know, get folks to report better or could flag certain vessels always having strange ratios. So maybe we don't let those vessels continue to, to fish and so on and so forth. So that's just one example of ways in which Camlar tries to um, monitor whether or not illegal, unreported or fishy things are, are happening. But of course, there's many more and I'm not necessarily the expert on it. But then, yes, to tie it all back, that's why your research about like, the amount of populations and the amount of how much they're interconnected and what's there and what's not, etc. with two fish is obviously super important to Camelot and I obviously think so as well. So there you go, full circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, awesome. I guess that brings us to the next bit of the podcast, which we call Field Work Fun Times. And in, as you can probably tell from just listening to you, you have been lucky enough to travel, um, work and live in many different places throughout your academic career. And you're also quite high up within APEX itself, which is the Association of Polar Early Career Scientists, who are our kind of the mother of polar times. So uh, what is, where is the most exciting place or event that your polar career has taken you thus far and I suppose at the risk of asking a compound question where would you like it to take you in the future I think I would answer your question in the following way there's no one particular event that pops out to me in general the types of events that I've really enjoyed have been related to getting to travel places to conferences and hang out with really cool later career and early career scientists. I've made so many friends through this. And I think that it's an answer to a question that could be anything. I could be a economist. I could be a, a sculptor or a sculptor of, of feet, like something very specific that I go to foot sculpture conferences. Like yeah, it's okay. a- like That's where your brain took yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Foot, foot sculptures. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's just like having the opportunity to go to cool cities and and meet interesting people. That that's a little bit what sort of keeps me in polar science. I mean, sure, it's, Antarctic fish are interesting, but everything is interesting. Like fish from the Gulf of Arabia could be really interesting, and they are. It's it's just that I've met and become a part of this whole community that I sort of want to stay in. And that's, I think, been the best part of it. I mean, I have not had the chance to go to the field yet. And lots of people in this, in this field, at the risk of using the word multiple times, have that opportunity often. It's why they get involved in it. And I can understand that. Part of the reason I switched domains, let's say, at the risk of using the same word. The reason I, I switched subjects, domains, was that I was, oh, it's too much lab work, it's too much computer work, I want to be outside. And so field work is outside. 
which is great. The other thing, though, is that fieldwork, especially Antarctic fieldwork, takes you away from home for a really long time. And I'm a real homebody. I like to be home with my partner. I like to, you know, watch TV episodes and cook dinner together. I, I don't really like the idea of being away for three months. That makes me nauseous <laughs> a little to think about. And I think it's something that I would do at least once. And I hope it's maybe on the scale of a month or something like that. If I, if I could go in the field for, you know, a week or two, or if I was going into the field in a way that was, you know, an hour away by train and I could do it once a week, that would be very different from the type of commitment that you have to make to go to the field in Antarctica. So while I know that that's really cool, and perhaps because I've never been, I'm able to say, oh, I don't really care. Maybe once I go, I'm like, oh, guys, you got to go. It's life changing. <laughs> that also kind of annoys me because I say, you know what? Regular everyday life can be amazing. You don't have to have see the amazing things and just like penguins and, and icebergs. You know, the, the quotidian can be just as amazing. And so I'm, I'm a bit in the grasp of the beauty and amazingness of the quotidian. So I like the fact that I can do most of my work on the computer. So I can do it from anywhere, especially in COVID times. I, I don't feel that I'm restricted so much as to where I'm working. I can work where my heart takes me, whether that be my partner, whether it be my family, uh, or just a cool place. Again, like wanting to do my SCAR fellowship in the south of France. So I think I really, the thing that's coolest to me about this job is, is the flexibility that it has um, and the cool people that I've met, which is not so unique, I guess, to polar sciences. But that's just me, I guess. There you go. No, that's still a good answer. Yeah, excellent. Uh, an interesting and different take, but really right. Because, I mean, people say, um, you know, I mean, I say it. It's like my field work I thought was life-changing. I'm doing the air quotes here. <laughs> and it, it was in some ways, but then it was also very life-uprooting. You know, you're right. Especially in polar science, there is a big commitment it's a big ask isn't it <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. just, uh, you're not just exactly like you say you're not just popping to somewhere accessible <laughs> the next section of my podcast is the polar plug do you have a topic that you'd like to talk about for two or three minutes something you'd like to advertise or draw people's attention to i guess the only thing i would say is to come full circle to, to give a sort of public service announcement regarding the type of my research interest, the type of thing that I do. You know, I study this Antarctic toothfish, otherwise known as Chilean sea bass, in order to inform the management of its fishery. But I would challenge folks and to think about the extent to which this fishery even needs to exist. Obviously, that's not my decision. Um, and I'm a vegetarian, so I don't even eat <laughs> Chilean sea bass, um, or any fish for that matter. But you know, Kamlar's mandate is to protect protein sources. And one could argue, for example, that krill is a protein source. Krill is often harvested to create fish meal for fish that are farmed. And many, many parts of the world on local fisheries, the fisheries support the humans that live in these places. So I would not, I would never argue, especially because I'm also uninformed, but I would, even being uninformed, I would never argue that those places should eliminate their fishery if it's managed in a sustainable manner, because those are really supporting people's nutrition and diet. But Chilean sea bass, 
first of all, its largest market is is the U.S. So it's mostly many other countries that are fishing it and then essentially sending it somewhere to be processed and then sending it to the U.S. So also the carbon footprint of this fish is insane. Boats going from South Africa, Chile, uh, Australia, New Zealand, down to the Southern Ocean, then bringing fish to, you know, a place like Singapore. And then the fish is being sent again to the U.S. I mean, it's just, it's huge, just the carbon footprint. And then this is a fish that I was in New York uh, last Christmas, and I went to a fish store and the fish was being sold for $40 a pound. So if you think about kilos and euros, I mean, that's going to be somewhere almost like 75 euros a kilo. I mean, this is not a fish that is supporting people's ability to have protein in their diet. This is a fancy fish. Mm. And, (laughs) and it's honestly, it's really supporting economies that were created around its existence and the extent to which those economies, I mean, obviously there's fishermen that are being supported by fishing for toothfish. And if the fishery for toothfish disappeared, those people would need to have a job. So that's certainly a concern, but that shouldn't be a reason why it is perpetuated. So I think that the argument is quite, so, so while I dedicate my daily work to understanding how to best manage this fishery, if it were up to me, I would actually even ask the question, why does this fishery even exist? Because I do not see a compelling reason why this is a fishery that supports the diets, nutrition, and livelihood of populations on the planet. It's really just supporting economies that, you know, economies that have have erupted around it that, you know, with perhaps varying degrees of difficulty, I'm not informed enough to know, could perhaps be rerouted in another direction. So I guess that's the, the message I would leave that perhaps could also be applied to, to other species of fish. I, I'm not an expert on them, but I guess next time you think about what fish you're, you're eating or, or buying, you know, think about not just whether the fishery is sustainable, which is sort of the first question. Is it sustainably fished and managed? Think about what was the carbon footprint to get it to your plate and the extent to which this fish is even necessary to be fished. Is this something that is just tastes good and is nice? Is there maybe a local fish that could be just as good? Is this a fish that's only being sold to uh, have something exciting for uh, rich Westerners to eat? You know, so that those are, I think, the the things that I would leave one to think about and that I that I continue to think about and the extent to which that will ever change for toothfish, because obviously it's a very political thing, is an open question. So my job is just to make sure the fishery is managed in the best possible way. But for the consu- the consumers are the ones that will really make that decision, because obviously if nobody bought toothfish, there would not be. there would not be a fishery for it. So if it's impossible to get rid of the fishery, then people can think about the choices they make in buying it, uh, whether or not this is something that's worth being supported. So I guess that would be my my last little note. There you go. Yeah, excellent. So there you go, everyone. It's all on you, the consumers. (laughs) Shop sustainably. (laughs) Yeah. Um, No, yeah, definitely. That's super, super super interesting. This whole luxury fish idea. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily put Patagonia or Antarctic toothfish in that <laughs> in that box, but there you go. That just shows, doesn't it? So, okay. Yeah. I think that's all we have time for today on this episode of Polar Times. Thank you so much for everyone for listening. 
Uh, please don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe on all of the podcast apps. We're on Apple now, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, yay, just hands. Yeah. <laughs> we also have um, a new email. So if you would like to get in contact with us and you have any questions for a pro scientist, or if you'd like to recommend a guest, then you can email us at thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. Once more, thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. You can also tweet us, uh, tweet Apex uh, at polar underscore research. And then all that leads me to do is to thank my guest, Jill Nicacaro. Thank you so much for joining with me. Thank you so much, Jack, for inviting me and for creating this amazing Polar Times universe. I'm so excited to follow this podcast now as part of my podcast regiment. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, join us again for another episode of Polar Times. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.